Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Sheriff. Uh, guys, I just want to point out first and, fo and foremost, I am so thankful right now for the support that our show has gotten. Right now, guys, we are at episode number 15. I have a special, special, special guest, Brent Sopel, with me right now. Due to the fact that, unfortunately, my co-host, Kyle Warner, will not be with us for this episode. So, ladies and gentlemen, Brent Sopel has actually said that he doesn't mind starting the show in the beginning with me, which I'm so grateful. Um, Brent, how are you tonight, my friend? So, does Kyle have a 24-hour Brent Sopel flu? Is that, is that what we're calling this one? Hey, man, I know guys that played against you in your career that did have the Brent Sopel flu, so it is a possibility, my friend. It is yeah, a possibility. Well, I appreciate it, and, uh, you know, I'm going to have a lot of fun, and, you know, I'm interested to hear what you got to say. I love that you're co-hosting it, and the way you, way you get better is by jumping in, two feet in. Let's do this. That's right, buddy, and I appreciate that. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Brent Sopel, you know, I was, um, I was actually introduced by Ryan Phillips, to Brent, to Brent Sopel. And I wanted to give a quick shout out to Ryan Phillips because the thing is, guys, is I was going to get into like, you know, the fact that, you know, our show is rated on multiple charts, stuff like that. But what's more important to me is the action that happens through the show. So, for example, guys, I had the opportunity to meet an incredible man, Ryan Phillips. We did an episode a couple weeks ago. I learned so much from him. We are now friends, which I am most appreciative of. And what comes out of great relationships is meeting other people through those great relationships. And I was introduced to Brent Sopel, like I said, through Ryan Phillips. And now I'm able to contact... Brent Sopel, do a, do a show where he's my co-host. That's just the way it worked out today. And right now, guys, we are going to get into some really important topics and have a lot of fun. So that type of thing is so important to me. And that is the beauty of doing the podcast, guys. It's the networking and the people that you meet, the awareness that you can create, and the action that follows from that. Brent. I know that you are a guy of action. I know that you are an incredible hockey player. You're a Stanley Cup champion. You know what I mean? You're an idol to so many. But what impresses me the most about you, my friend, is the fact of what you stand for, of never giving up and really being there for people. And I want to get into the Brent Sopel Foundation, like right off the hop, because there's so much that we're going to get into I want to talk about the foundation because that's what's most important to me. Then I want to get into your incredible career, and then we're just going to go wild. So I just want you to quickly just explain the Brent Sopel Foundation. Yeah, you know, first, uh, the fact that you want action, um, I'm all about action. You know, words are only words. What goes on after? You know, be able to talk to talk, walk the walk. And too many people in this world just talk, you know, talk to talk. So the fact that you do the walk, the walk, you know, um, God bless you. And it's, it, it's amazing. You're doing a great job so far and uh, absolute pleasure to be here. And, you know, Brent Sopel Foundation started about three and a half years ago um, after I got sober. Um, I found out 10 years ago I'm dyslexic. So I was 32 years old when I uh, found out what it was and how I found out I got my daughter tested. 
she was struggling. So he took her to neuropsych and it was a two day test. We finally went back a week or 10 days later, uh, going over the answers. And they're like, Oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. And I, you know, we pieced it together. So that was the first time I've ever heard the words dyslexia. I was 32. And you look back, I was reading at a grade four level in high school. You know, my education probably yeah. doesn't pass grade eight. And dyslexia is one in five and it's hereditary. Everybody knows what autism is. That's one in 65 and not hereditary. Really? Yeah. So if you take a look, remember when we went to school, there's 20 or 25 kids in that class. <clears throat> so yeah. four, four or five, <clears throat> excuse me, four or five of them were dyslexic. Wow. That's, that's, see, that's creating awareness right there, my friend, because I didn't know that. I actually did my research and, and looked up a bunch of things. And I heard you say that in some of the interviews that I've been watching the last couple days, but I did not know that before I looked into you, right? So that's, that's a really big deal for people to know that. One in five, you said, Brent? Uh, yes, one in five, and it's hereditary. So we're born with a right brain wired differently. So it's not like we take a shot or nothing. We're born that way. So dyslexics, we start struggling from the first time as a kid, we pick up a book year and a half, two years old. That's when we're for our self-esteem start taking, uh, taking a hit. And that's what really dyslexia is. You know, I don't focus on the reading. It's that self-esteem. When you struggle with something over and over and over again, and you know, you're in a grade eight, you just want to be cool. You want around your peers. You want the group and the chicks to like you, but you can't read. You know, so you, I know you're a stat guy, so I, you know, I can go stats for stat for you. You know, 50% of people in prison in the world are dyslexic. So half the people in prison have dyslexia in the world. Wow. Which is absolutely, you know, in, incredible. You want to talk about the imprisonment rate, you, you want to do those numbers, it's insane. You know, we got 65% of us are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Now everybody's like, why? Well, because we started struggling a year old. Two years of old. course, and it's something. It's it's mental health. You know, it's in here. You can't see it. So the words that we get called are dumb, stupid, and lazy, because that's what the teachers say. Like, oh, you're just fooling around. No, we're trying, but they can't see it. And dyslexia, I say, less than twenty percent of the world actually knows what it is. So don't feel bad that you didn't. Most of the world doesn't, and that's what I'm here about. You know, my documentary is called "Here to Change the World," but yeah. I got to. I got to educate the world before I can change it. That's those are true words. And, and, and I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that and, and, and you are changing the world for the better good. You need to hear that, right? Cause you are, I got a stat for you All right. by researching you, you know, I found out that 30% of self-made millionaires mm -hmm. are dyslexic, correct? correct? Correct. Okay, so now my friend, knowing everything that you just explained right now, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, you, what, what stood out to me was when you said, when you're 18 years old and, and you know, and I know that feeling, man, I, man, I was the most extreme case and you want all the girls and this and that, but you can't read, right? You can't read. And this is something that is probably one of the most used, one of, one of, one of what we, with society rate, the way it works, one of the most important things 
to have to be able to use as a tool to read and write. So I can only imagine like the character, the, the, the resilience, the, the determination, man, I, I got to get a thesaurus out and, and look up champion and, and see everything. And for me to be able to explain for someone that has that being held against them, being able to thrive in this kind of society, man, that's very impressive. And, and so when I saw that 30% stat, I was like, I don't swear on the show, but effing right, man. Effing right, it's 30%. These guys are warriors, man. True ones at that. Right? 100%. And I'll give you another one to add to that. 50% of people that work at NASA are dyslexic. 50%? So... Now let's go now. Now, like I said, knowing all this information, knowing all the things that, that just jumped out at me, I wanted, I know that you were born in Calgary. Now you, your family moved to Saskatoon when you were about two and a half, right? Yeah. Okay. So now growing up in Saskatoon, man, that is a really, really big hockey community, right? Like you got your major junior team, which obviously we'll talk about that in a second, but it's just a a really hockey rich area is it not like well it's, it's saskatoon and you know what else is there to do when it's minus 50 <laughs> you know the green right the rough riders are done so um there's nothing going on so, you know i think this year they broke a record it was 33 days in a row they're the coldest place in the world not a lot of dugouts you know a lot of ice to just skate on and um that that's what saved me is that when I stepped on the ice, I knew I didn't have to do a math problem. And, you know, you talk about, you know, reading and writing. And, you know, if you're bad at math, there's a job for you. But if you can't read, there's no job for you. Yeah, exactly. I step on the ice and not worry about it. And that's why, you know, uh, there's a book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell did the, did the book called The Outliers. He talked about needing 10,000 hours before you get good or anything, you know. I think I had that before I was five years old because I was comfortable on the ice and not comfortable anywhere else. And you know how me as a former player, a sports fanatic, a hockey statistician, if that was said right. Correct. Nicely done. I look at things a little bit different than the average hockey fan because I'm a super fan that played, that knows the system and knows what it's like growing up in Canada, playing minor hockey and yeah. getting to the pro level. And what I see, Brent, how what you said is so true about the only place that I was comfortable is the ice. How I know that's true is because I know how it is, brother. When I look at your 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 hockey story like your career like i said i'm a stats guy so i like hockey db yeah whenever i was like you know gonna fight a guy a big name i'd hockey db him and just want to see like what his story is and i'm just like that right so i'm looking at your story brent and the way that you did it bro you embraced the system and were so successful and only a guy that absolutely felt complete in that setting, I believe, can do it the way that you did it. And, and, and I'll explain. I'm going to explain that, what, what I mean, throughout the next couple topics, okay? Yep. 
Now, when you were growing up in Saskatoon, the Saskatoon Blades must have been a really big deal in your town, right? Absolutely. A really big deal, though, Brent. Oh, that, that was where you wanted to go, 100%. You looked up to these guys. They were gods to you, right? 100%, absolutely. Because that's how I was with, with any type of, like, major junior level and up. Like, I was, like, I was amazed. I thought it was so awesome that these guys were that good at hockey and, you know, could wear half visors. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like, we were, like, man, like, 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 to me, when we played, Brent, like, gro- growing up and, like, you know, eventually being pro and, like, man, your career was so different from mine. But I'm just talking about a guy that got to experience what I got to. I got a sniff of the top level. I got to experience multiple NHL camps. I got to play, but not for a long time. Right. So, man, I, 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 I'm telling you right now. So when you when you got a chance to play for Saskatoon, did you feel an extra pride because that's where you grew up? That's what you idolized for so long. And now that's you. You know, and, and like you talk about, you got to have you got goals. Right. You know, and that was our goal. There wasn't social media like there now. So that was our our goal in sight for us. So, um, yeah, I, when I made it there and, and I think I had four points in the first game, I'm like, this league is easy. <laughs> I had two and two. I'm like, this is easy. I, I learned pretty quickly. That's not the case, but, um, you know, friends and family coming and you're on, now you're on TV with the old VCR there at home recording the game. And yeah, I thought I was big time. Mm-hmm. So now you, um, do you remember the scenario for like like I'm assuming that it was a trade, right? When you when you switch teams? Yeah, I got traded from uh, Swift or from Saskatoon for goaltender Ian Gordon to, to Swift Current. Um, anytime you get traded, doesn't matter if it's junior or in the NHL. Even if you ask for a trade, it's still tough. You know that was my very first trade. I was living at home. Life was great. You know, in Saskatoon, like you said, big dog on campus. And I got a call, and I'm like, oh, you know, I was pissed. You know, now I got to go, you know, in my parents' minivan, drive two, two and a half hours to Speedy Creek, and I'm leaving the big city of Saskatoon where, you know, I, was, I, wanted, you know, I wanted to play my whole career. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, it wasn't a setback for you because you kept thriving as far as, like, the hockey went. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know... In other parts of your life, if maybe they weren't going the way that you wanted, but hockey-wise, you were thriving through that, even though there was the trade. But would you agree with that? Oh, one hundred percent. It was it was it was great for my career. You know, I had to get out of the house, I had to grow up, and um, I always say change is usually the best. It's the hardest, but it's usually the best. And you know, for me, so Todd McCollin was my coach at GM. Obviously, he's he's coaching the LA Kings right now. He's still in the NHL. He's won Stanley Cup. So for me to get out of uh, Mom and dad's nest, you know, get up, had to grow up, you know, had to move away from home. You know, it was tough. It was the first time ever. Um, but I needed that, you know, because I, I ended up getting drafted a couple years later and taken off and turning pro and basically have never been home ever since. Now, I, I'm, and I'm so excited about the turning pro time. The one thing I wanted to ask you, though, Brent, was like for me at that age, because we were kind of like, like really identifying with ourselves and like, 
you know, that's like the high school age, right? When we were in major junior. So like, that's when like, you know, groups start developing maybe based on the type of music that you listen to or, or the type of clothes that you like to wear. And, you know, like people start changing a little bit. And then with me, because, you know, like, like my, my mother is white, my father is black. In society, I'm looked at as a light-skinned black guy, and I'm more than fine with that. I'm very comfortable with that. But in those teenage years, I had an issue where I got traded a couple times in Major Junior. So when I went to a new group of guys where more than half of them are older than me, especially my first two years in the league, I would have to go through a transition of knowing, okay, so... Am I going to get along with this group of guys? Like, are they cool that I'm a little bit different? Like, because there was some teams that were different than others, man. Like when I played in Sarnia, the vets didn't like me. I felt it was because I was different. When I got traded to Kitchener, they all loved me. And it was just completely different dynamics. And I did so much better there. For you, with what you have going on, what was it like, brother, going to new groups was it, this is a secret of yours, right? Yeah. You know, I so like, how did you do that? Like, how did you, like, did you learn more every time a group changed because you would have that experience of you trying to hide that part of your life? No, Does no, that yeah. make sense? No, no. When how, I, was, I know exactly where you're going. You know, I'm 44. My body's 64. My brain's 74. I tell people all the time, I'm okay with who I am. I love myself. Now, I wish I could go back to those teenage years and say that, you know, doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl or if you're white, you're black, you know, we're all uncomfortable with who we are, you know, with the hormones and, and then you, you know, obviously the testosterone and, and everything going that. So, you know, I didn't know I was dyslexic. So I had a lot of crazy rituals, you know, superstitions and guys thought I, I was weird and it took me till after I retired and get sober to understand what that was. So I didn't know what it was back then. I just thought that who it was who I was and hockey is a great part of it. I didn't have to read, you know, it's not like football. You had all the playbooks, you know, you know, on the board, there's some videos, some whiteboard. I could, I need to visually see that. So I didn't struggle with that. People didn't see that. I, you know, I wouldn't read obviously up on the board or, or anything like that. But my rituals is something that sticks with every player that I ever played with. When God, he was like, he was crazy. He did some crazy things, and that was kind of the glue holding my life together till I could figure out what it was. Can you just give me one example? You know, so driving to the rink here in the, you know in the NHL, I had to listen to the song. I had to turn at this exact street. I had to get up the time I skated this time. Everything was was laid out, and if I missed one thing, I was done. Okay. okay. And I, like, it was crazy. I'm doing visualization and literally jumping around and guys like, is this guy, is this guy serious? And again, I didn't understand what that meant until after I got sober and became, you know, figure out who I was and be okay with it. And then, you know, I pieced it all together, but yeah, it was pretty crazy. But now that example that you just gave of, of the visualization part, I mean, that was something that, you obviously naturally did before you even realize what you were doing, which my friend is a very powerful thing because I've, you know, been educated a lot on that type of thing, manifestation, visualization recently in my life. 
and you're saying that you did stuff like that, not knowing really what you were doing back as far as being a teenager. So, you know, that's how I visually is how I saw. So, yeah, I, I, you know, dyslexics, you know, we always got to figure, you know, there's no straight line for us. We kind of got to zigzag because we learn differently. So that's all. It's a learning difference. You know, I still call it learning disorder because the world's not educated enough to know the difference. I used to kind of teach me differently, but I didn't know what it was. Nobody else knew what it was. So I, I figured out my own way without even knowing uh, what I was doing. I was figuring out how I needed to, uh, to position myself to get better. Yeah. Now, you, you, were, you were blessed with, with the opportunity of getting drafted to the National Hockey League. Now, again, brother, as an ex-player and someone that knows how things work, you were a six-round pick, correct? Yeah. Okay. So you were a six-round pick, Brent Sopel. You were not supposed to have the career that you had. You know that, right? Correct. (laughs) Okay. So you were a guy that was given an opportunity in a world where you felt complete, comfortable, and, 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 and incredible. So you saw this, and, and this is another example of what I meant, brother, about, about you thriving. There was other guys that were supposed to get there instead of you, or they were supposed to have a better chance to make it than you, and they were given a longer look, and they were given more of an opportunity than you. But you, you were the one that got there, right? So that's incredible on its own. The other thing that I find incredible that I just want you to talk about a little bit was the fact that you started playing. I don't know if it, if you just started another level of play or this is the way it just was, but the fact that you played those AHL games when you were 18 and 19, I think. Yep. There was two seasons, brother, that you went up there. I'm assuming it was after your 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 year was done in junior because that's what the NHL clubs do with the top prospects in their mind. Yep. Usually not the six rounders, but usually the first the first rounders, maybe the second rounders, right? Yep. So, man, that like how did you find out about that? They just told you that when your season was done that you're going to play some playoffs or like how did that work? You know, and so you know, we'll go back a little bit, you know, for dyslexics we have to work twice as hard as anybody, you know? So you talk about my path and everything that had gone on is I've always had to work harder, you know, and that's just who I am, you know, obviously on the farm and, and my parents, so I've always had to work twice or three times as hard to get anything done. And that's just translation translated on ice. And that's, I was uh, obviously but the slowest and the, and the ugliest in the NHL, but you know, <laughs> I'll work you. I was going to get there. And you were, I was, you know, I wasn't going to get stopped. And that was the biggest difference is that I just kept going and just kept going. And it didn't matter if that first round was supposed to get more opportunity. You know, I just put my head down and, uh, you know, I just kept going and just kept going until, um, you know, got to one and then I got to two and it just slowly just kept going from there. Uh-huh. So like, yeah. So like, I mean, that, that really jumped out on me that a, that a six round pick was a guy that, not only right before you signed, but the year before that too, man, they had you up there. So they must have really, really like saw it in you. They must have saw the, the look in your eye, man, when they, when they met you at draft day or whatever, whatever the situation. I know you were, you were playing extremely well, but man, I'm telling you, like, I know how it works. It's yeah. very <laughs> rare to see that. 
you know, it, there's a lot that goes in it. You know, stars got a line, obviously, whoever drafts you, you know, that GM coach got like you. And um, obviously, I played many years for Brian Burke and Mark Crawford. Um, they gave me the opportunity to kept putting me out there and letting me make mistakes. So you've got to have the, that, those lines. So there's a lot of things that got to go right, you know, to, to stick around. You know, it's easy to get into the NHL. It's harder to stick. And uh, I just, again, put my you know, work boots on every day. And I just worked and just kept working and going and going and going. And, you know, I, I learned things a lot differently. You know, uh, something called spatial awareness. That's where that NASA, you know, we can see, you know, like a 3D image. So on the ice of hockey, I knew where we were, they were going before they did, or I knew where the puck was going. So, you know, that my dyslexic world is the reason why I got to play in the NHL as long as I did. And I know that one example of that is the quarterback that's in your city right now. Right? Uh, guys, that's how he... No, but isn't yeah. that how he claims he's yeah. effective? Oh, yeah. You know, you, all short passes, again, in which you got six six Super Bowls. You know, yeah. Uh, seven now. That was seven. But, you know, it's, it's, it's little blocks, you know. And he always talks about control what you can control. And yeah. In my day, you know, you can't change the past. You can't change the future. You can only live now. So now... I know that the farm is also a big part of things, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and I really want to talk about that. But just going with where we are right now, Brent, so the farm boy, right? What was, for the farm boy, what was, when you, when you signed with, with Vancouver, right? What was, did, you, did they give you normal six-round money? Or did they, like, what happened with that? You don't have to give me a number amount, but was it good for the round or was it better? Yeah. You know, again, it was time money for for you know a kid out of Saskatoon signing a contract. I was like, oh my god, I've never seen so much monopoly money in my life. And um, you know, it was it was great money for me. I wasn't so focused on the dollar signs, and that's the difference about when I came in the league and now the dollar signs are the focus. Yeah, I was just fine. And I was like, oh my god, I got a contract. I didn't look at the dollar figures and what it broke out to be. Um, I think I was making 18,000 Canadian to minors in the U.S. at that point in time. You yeah. know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the money. I didn't, yeah. play, I didn't play for the money. It's what kept me alive. That was the only place that I lived. That's where I breathed. That's where my heartbeat was on that ice, where I felt comfortable in life. And that was just all I focused on. And that's kind of what really made me successful day in, day out. The journey. Yeah. You enjoyed the journey. The journey made me who for I am. For hockey. Hockey wise, when you were on the ice, yeah, you know, again, everything happens in your journey for a reason. And you know, the Swift Current trade, you know, I needed to go there and grow up a little bit before I could sign the contract that you talked about. You know, then talked about I went to Syracuse, New York. So going from Swift Current, Saskatchewan, God's country, all the way to Syracuse, New York. I'm like, where, where am I going? You know, so that trade was good for me. I needed it. You know, in hindsight, it was it was perfect. It, it was meant to be. So. Everything in everybody's path happens for a reason. And there's always a message in something that happens. You just have to find it. True, true words. Thank you very much for saying that, buddy. That is, I'm, I'm loving that. Now, this is, this, is, this is something that really jumped out on me, Brent, okay? Back to the thriving in hockey, man. You're giving, you just said that the money didn't mean anything. And I, and I understand what you mean because you were now... I mean, first of all, the entry-level contract being a three-year deal, 
when I signed mine, buddy, I didn't even realize how good it was. You know what yeah. I mean? To be on a three-year contract, I think it, it was the longest contract I was ever on. <laughs> I, think, right? I, I think I made uh, $40 a month. You know, so I'm like, oh, you know, I got some gas money. You know, so I went from that to that. I'm like, whoa, this is yeah, time. yeah. And, and so, like, okay, so again, what jumped out on me, brother, was okay. So from 2000 to 2004, those are like your your four kind of full years, first four full years in the NHL. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, brother, but this is something that is absolutely incredible to a statistician, okay? Brent Sopel comes into the NHL, does well, you know, makes his mark, you know, blocks every shot possible in life, in life, not even in the game, more shots than we even see this man is blocking, okay? You do well, Brent. Your second year in the NHL, you double your totals. You double your totals. From first year to second year, you doubled your totals. I just said that three times because I just can't believe it. Your third year in the, o- in the OHL, in the what? National Hockey League, Brent Sopel, you even better that. You get like, I don't know what it is. I mean, I can look down here. I think it was a 10 points more from your second to third, from your third to your fourth. You did even better, Brent Sopel. You improved again. You got another five or six points past the third year. So to somebody that that knows how things work, right? Why I'm impressed by that, Brent, is because like there's only certain guys that I saw this happen with. I'll give you an example. I played with a guy named Paul Gosted. Okay. Paul Gosted was a seventh-round pick to the Buffalo Sabres. I was the eighth-round pick. We both signed our entry levels, and I got to play with Paul for, for I think it was three years in, in Rochester before he graduated to Buffalo, okay? Paul Gosted thrived in the system. Mm-hmm. He was a guy that, again, wasn't supposed to make it right away, but he got the opportunity. He got better every year. He just mastered that face-off. And just being a defensive centerman, and he was six foot five, and, oh, yeah. and every team needed him, and he worked so hard in the summer. And I watched this, and I watched him get better and better and better. And I knew that Paul was going to make it to the National Hockey League, and Paul ended up having a fantastic career. Oh, absolutely. But he wasn't supposed to be there, but he thrived in the system. Paul Gostad is the poor man, Brent Sopel. Buddy. You did that and 10 times some. And, and that is so, so impressive to me, man, that you did that. And, 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 it's, and I, ha- I had to point that out, man, because people need to know the, the work that it must have taken, Brent. And, and I'm assuming that every training camp that you showed up to, you were in even better shape. And it starts from the beginning your strength coach was probably like, man, Brent, I'm so happy to see this, man. I can't wait to tell so-and-so and so-and-so how good you look. And I know you've been working hard this summer. Then the next year, he probably went on for another five minutes. And then, and, and you know, the pattern's going to continue. And I know it starts from day one. This is the best league in the world, Brent. And you just excelled in it. Just like, I, like, I don't know, I, like, like I could do the research, but I couldn't really see another player getting so much better every year like you did in that era. And man, oh man, 
Like, was that time of your life, like, was that one of the more productive times? Because that's incredible, my friend. Yeah, 100%. Obviously, it goes back to, you know, Brian Burke and Mark Crawford, you know, putting me back out there. You know, I made plenty of mistakes. And, you know, we had some great teammates to, that, that I played with and Marcus Naslin and Todd Bertucci and my D partner, Matthias Olin. You know, so we had some amazing teams. But um, I just, I was a sponge. I wasn't supposed to be there. And I didn't think of it that way. I just, the one thing I had is work boots. I just worked and I just worked and I just, you know, just kept working. And the difference that back then I was on a four-year deal. Um, but if I hit certain bonuses, my contract got higher. Really? So, so yeah. okay. So I don't mean to interrupt you. So you did your entry level first, yeah. three years. Yeah. And then your second contract was a four-year deal? It was a three plus one, correct. Okay. That's fantastic. Continue, my friend. So that, so it was myself, I think Peter Schaefer and Matt Cook, Brian Burke made us all sign it. You know, really? Uh, if you hit 20 points, your, your salary got, you know, went up again. If you hit 25, it went up again. So earlier in the show, I talked about having goals, right? You know, yeah. so every point, every point I got, you know, a little bit closer to that goal, a little closer to that goal, a little closer to that goal. Here in the NHL, they don't do that now because of salary cap. And oh. so my last year, um, my, my salary doubled because I, you know, I just kept going and I kept going and there's those goals were in my head. All right. I knew where I was. I knew where I had to be every day. It was a visual process for me to keep going. And again, it goes back to all I did is work. You know, one thing you can control. The only thing you can control is how hard you work. Where did you live in those off seasons during those four years? Uh, back in Syracuse, New York at that point in time. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, to... so so you had a you had a, you had something set up in, in the queues. Yeah, you had a trainer from from the queues. So I, I spent the first summers after getting drafted in Vancouver, and yeah, I think I was you know six two one sixty five, just a little just a little peg, and I had to put on weight, you know, and that's what I did each and every year is put on more weight, and that's you know that's what fans don't understand how hard it is for for hockey players is you know we put on this weight during season, then we lose it. Then we put it on. Like your body's not naturally supposed to, supposed to do that. You know, no. put weight up, you know, drop, and then sleep patterns. You know, most people get up in the morning. You're supposed to ramp up the day and at night ramp down. We're the opposite. So um, that was the biggest thing is putting on weight and strength because it's the be- you know best league. You're playing against the Peter Forsbergs and the Augers and the guys that are just you know, <laughs> you, know, man, you know Forsberg on me every single night. You know, so for me to play. I had to put on that weight. I had to put that strength on uh, to be able to match up with it. Yeah, man, that's that's incredible. So, wow. So now, all right. So the, the next two years after this, Brent, New York and L.A., New York and L.A., I mean, talk about getting to see everything, right? Yeah. Again, well, back to 0405, that's when we locked out for a year. That's yeah. When- it came that's how cap came in and i ended up getting traded from vancouver which again that was my first trip pro trade yeah coast that's to coast right. you know going from vancouver to uh out in new york and i was obviously upset you know obviously the stats were going great we had great teams but the salary cap came in i ended up being being problem with that you know so went to long island and uh hated every second of it there um mike milbury was a gm was a terrible gm terrible owner and so I was blessed to get out and, you know, get back to the other coast in, in L.A. But 
every step you go, every time I was on the ice, it was, to, you know, I was con- I was auditioning for 28, 29 other teams at that point in time. You know, every time you step on the ice, you're not just playing for your team, you're playing for every other scout there. And that's, you know, that's how I, you know, uh, was my process every day. And then going to LA, so big city to big city, coast to coast, um, new lifestyle. It was just, yeah. I had to figure out my own way. Um, and my way was different than everybody's, but I had to be okay with that. Yeah. So now when, when you lived in LA, did it take you a while to get used to like that weather? Like, listen, I'm a Saskatchewan farm boy. I know. It just don't, we don't drive too well. You know, uh, I'm not surfing the beaches. I swim like a rock. Um, uh, so it was, it was really different. You know, I grew up in Saskatchewan. It's minus 30. You're going to the range. You're really feeling it. Wearing shorts and flip-flops to the practice. It just, it, it did, took me a while to really um, not be okay with it. Just, just, you know, fit into it. Yeah, no, exactly. And like, <laughs> man, it, it's the, like, I know that you played for two original six franchises, but just also, you know, the fact that you got to play on both coasts, like, like you really got, and I know we were we were talking earlier in the show, like the pre-show, like just the fact of all these cities that you played in, because you know you had a stop in Atlanta, and you know of course Chicago, and like every major airport, everything, man. Like you just like, I mean, like you know how there's like the tickers for when people enter like grocery stores. There's a guy that's ticking to see how many people are in the yeah. store. Like, man, I, I think if you had a ticker your whole life and you were just tick, 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 tick every time you, like, pass someone, you might have some of the highest numbers, buddy. Like, you, you know, <laughs> I, a lot of people, I, but. Overseas, yeah. So, you know, hockey's been great to me for what I, you know, why I saw, I saw the world, met, you know, cultures and friends. And, um, you know, it's been a blessing and it, it's granted me my foundation. And um, everywhere, everywhere was an obstacle. There was something new everywhere you go. Everyone, the problem with the big cities, I'm like, I couldn't find any cheap rent. I had every major market where it was most expensive. That's true, eh? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> now, no, now, speaking of the major cities, I'm sorry? There's no Columbus or St. Louis. Again. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you, man. And, like, and I mean, speaking of the major cities, like, like I know that you did, you did have to, to be able to get reunited with Vancouver, all right? But, like... What, what I wanted to talk to you next about was the, the experience in Chicago. Now, I know that at the end of your career, you know, you, you, got, you, had, a, you had a sting with the Wolves. But now, the Blackhawks, like, and the reason why I'm so interested in this is because I had experiences with both organizations. And I absolutely love that city, right? A lot of people, especially Canadians... You know, they have a view on the States and they're like, yeah, you know, New York City, you know, best city, best city. I'm telling you, man, I mean, I lived in upstate New York and I lived in Chicago and I went to New York City and I I love Chicago, man. Just the culture. I mean, to go to Wrigleyville, like something like that, it's like an experience like no other. Right. And that city brings more than a normal city. Did you have the same kind of experiences like that, Brent? Yeah, you know, obviously, including all the years coming to Chicago, you know, for restaurants, we come here playing the Blackhawks, you know, new downtown really well, go out and have some fun and party and great restaurants. So, you know, like you said, great, great place, you know, coming here, obviously, you see it on a different level. And I ended up being here 13 years and winning a Stanley Cup with the original six, you know, it was, you know, 49 years since we won. And, you know, we ended up having two or three million people at the parade. It was just, it, it was, it was crazy. You couldn't. 
couldn't have, you know, it was a storybook ending for me. You know, Chicago was my original first game in the NHL. So what full circle to come back here and play, win the Stanley Cup. And then you talk about the Wolves is where I finished my career. Yeah. So no, buddy, like, I mean, you know, you know, you, you just said it, you know, the Stanley Cup, but like, and, and like, I know like Brent, like, I, like you had such a good career, right? So like this winning the Stanley Cup, obviously that's everyone's goal. That's, that's a, a hockey player's dream, but I just have a, I just have a feeling that there was a lot of parts of like from, for hockey. And then I'm talking about from minor hockey till the end and like all the experiences of getting to play in Russia, getting to do everything that you did, man. I, I, I imagine the Stanley cup is up there, but there must be, it, it must, I think that there's a lot of things that may be on that level. Am I, am I getting in the right direction here? You know, the Stanley cup, obviously I won it a million times on the outdoor rink in, in Saskatchewan. That's right. It was a dream come true. Um, but it, it, it's, it changed my world and it changed my world for my foundation. You know, I can get meetings being a Stanley Cup champion uh, in the White House and up in Capitol Hill and in, in Parliament. So um, what that Stanley Cup has done for me and my purpose and my foundation is is changed for every kid out there. Now, now that's that's really interesting for me to hear, brother. And I'm sure the listeners really appreciate that because I was kind of going in that direction, Brent. But like now it's even more clear the Stanley Cup. Because of what you're trying to do, which you are doing, is change the world. The Stanley Cup is kind of like, I guess, like the business card of you being able to do something like that. It's it's giving you that platform of that attention of adding that to your resume, which really takes flight, right? So the Stanley Cup to you is different than a Stanley Cup to another player because of what the mission that you have in life, right? Oh, 100%. You know, um, I, you know, I took the Stanley Cup to the Pride Parade. So I was the first athlete to ever participate in the Pride Parade. Really? And, yeah. You know, I took it there in honor of Brendan Burke. So Brian's son, he came out uh, gay in November of 09. You know, he passed okay. away in a car accident. So he was the first guy to come out, you know, in, in the hockey community being gay. So I, uh, I called the Burke family and asked if I could do that. They granted me the wishes. So, um, that Stanley Cup ground, you know, allowed me to go there and, and bring something to them that they've never had. And, you know, my foundation is you talk about, you know, oh, yeah, I played, you know, Brent still played 600 games. And now we're not going to see, it. oh, Stanley Cup champ. You know, that champ, you know, carries a lot of weight no matter where you are. It, you know, Tom Brady, you say champ, you know, you get interviews, you get calls, you get uh, appointments. And, and it has, it has opened a lot of doors for the foundation for it. And speaking of the foundation, now you were saying that you went through your entire life knowing that something was up, Brent, but you didn't know what it was, man. And 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 the earliest, I mean, I, I man, I, I just love doing research on you because you're so entertaining and you're so interesting that every new video I'd find, I'd almost get excited. I'd be like, oh yeah, man, what's this one, right? And like, cause I'm all into it, man. I love what you're doing, right? So the, the, the point that I was trying to get to was the fact that your foundation, you were, you were to create the foundation, you had to figure out what was, what was your situation. 
And the, the article and video where the earliest that I heard you say that you found out was 32 years of age. That's where I'm trying to get with this, okay? So now, how close was that to this Stanley Cup year? That was uh, very close. So I think yes. a couple of years after that, that I won the Stanley Cup. Okay, so it was, it was just following that Stanley yeah. Cup year. Okay, okay. So now... When once you found out what was happening, did you know right away that you had the opportunity and the platform to really, really change the world and that you were going to like, was it your idea to start a foundation or was it brought to you and you and you embraced it? Like what? How did that start? So there's a few things, you know, so I was 32 years old and I didn't even know what the word dyslexia was. Okay. Daughter found, you know, I was worried about her. Okay, let's get her to help. Get her. I don't need help. I'm playing hockey. I don't need to. I'm not going to do it. So I focused on her. You know, I retired from the game of hockey um, after playing 18 years pro and over a thousand games. You know, nobody would give me a job. You know, I got divorced, and so basically entered the real world at 40 years old with learning disorders, no education, no work experience. You know, my drugs and alcohol decided to kick in. And that's the reason why 65% of us are addicted to, because you know, I was covering the pain. Not, yeah. you know, we were told where to be from the time we we're born till I was 40 years old. Recess, school, plane, bus, game. Now you took that away from me. Now you took away my purpose in life. It's gone. I had nothing. And, you know, my drugs and alcohol are really, really bad. Um, I just about didn't see 40. Uh, my parents and some friends did an intervention and threw me in rehab. So I had to get sober. I had to feel the feelings raw and fall in love with who I was. And God made me and be okay with that. And then that's when the, the pieces started to fall into place and to my understanding of who I was and how I had to operate each and every day. And that's when the foundation came into play. And, you know, I, I knew that nobody talks about it. You know, dyslexia, I think less than 20% of the world knows what it is. And that's why I started the foundation, to, to be there to advocate for each and one of these kids that don't know they have it or don't know they're struggling. And whenever you're in a battle, it, alcohol, drugs, dyslexia, depression, you're in it yourself, so it's the worst thing ever. So my message is that you're not alone. You know, whatever, the, I've been in all those battles, you know, you know, each kid that's out there, dyslexic kid, you're not alone. So it's first to support them. And trying to advocate to change the world. And people looked at me like I got 10 heads when I said, I'm going to call it change the world. Because I truly believe I am. And I felt it for years that I'm going to. You are going to, my friend. You're absolutely going to. Now, what I want to know, and like, I'm trying to think of like things that, that need to be figured out. Why is it that the government doesn't help with this more? Like, is it because it can't be, like, pinpointed? It's so general that they're not, you have to pinpoint it on order to, get, like, I don't get it, man. You know, it's, there's a lot of things to that. So if you're not, if you don't have dyslexia, you have no idea how we operate each and every day. So, you know, you know let's say you had a principal runs a school who's not dyslexic. He's not, not going to ever even think about it. They don't even know what the words are. You know, so I've been up in the Capitol Hill um telling my story and just trying to educate them on what is going on and i've had some of them say to me wow brent I've, i'm blown away i've never heard this before so 
that's what I'm trying to educate before I can change is get an understanding of what it is that, you know, we just learn differently, you know, and most of the people don't get tested. So you're going through, you know, school, your main reading area is grade three and four for, for kids. You know, if you're not getting tested by then you're struggling and that's where the self-esteem comes into play. And that's why, you know, the sad stat, you know, suicides have tripled the last 10 years in teenagers and, with the suicide notes left, 90% of them have dyslexic traits. Really? Well, kids aren't nice in the first place, but when you struggle, you just want to be, yeah, I just want to be like him. Why can't I be friends with him? Why, you know, and it's yeah. simple where the most severe dyslexics will never read a day in their life. You know, we're great at other things, but we have to get through this part to be okay with who we are. And that's where we talk about 30% of self-made millionaires but it's a long path to get there. And I've got scars, you know, 32 years of raw scars that will never go away. And that's yeah. why I want to prevent any kid. Dyslexic will all have scars, but I want to prevent them having my scars as deep as they are. Now, and, and that's amazing. Now, with your daughter, you were able to, 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 to find out this before that grade three, grade four. Was it, well, she was in grade two, right? Correct. So she'd been struggling for a couple of years. So we finally decided to, to take her to the neuropsych and, and get her evaluated, get her tested. And that's the thing, you know, if you get every kid tested, you know, kindergarten, grade one, we're not going to have the numbers that we're talking about because we know how to teach them. You know, if you don't, if you're trying to teach a kid uh, the wrong way, of course, they're not going to learn. Of course, you're going to get frustrated. Of course, their self-esteem is going to go down. And you know, they end up going down a bad path because that's, that, you know, that's what it is. Thank goodness that my daughter, we found out early enough. And that's why I just focused on her. I just want to make her, you know, what do I need to do for her? And that's what, you know, essentially what I'm trying to do for every kid. Brent, like, and, and that's, that's absolutely fantastic. You have goals that are very good. You, you have a vision of what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do. And, and I believe in you and I believe that you're going to do this and that you're doing it right now because everybody that's, that's active in whatever they're doing in life, they don't really realize how big of an impact they're having because it's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. You have an impact right now. You're doing big things right now. You are changing the world, okay? This is what I want to know. Would it be would it be groundbreaking? Would it be productive if that was a law that kids had to be tested for this? Because then we would be able to identify and act accordingly? Yeah. Like would that solve a big thing with this? Yes, it definitely, you know, in the U.S., they're slowly starting get to getting to testing for dyslexia. Um, again, if you have cancer, you want to know early. How do you yeah. treat it? Dyslexia is the exact same, exact same way. And what the problem is that if you find out what it is, there's not enough teachers that are educated how to teach them. Okay. So, so there's a bigger fish, you know, that, that goes along with, but you're absolutely right. You know, if we could get them all tested, and you know extend that test out to all learning disorders so the kids don't you know kid in grade one knows what he has guess what i i learned differently you can teach that at a young age and just tell them oh you need to go down this path but 
you know, Mike Foundation's goal is to open dyslexic schools everywhere. And that's going to happen. On this show, Brent, we're really strong believers in trying to create awareness. Awareness equals action happening. People need to know and educate just like you're doing. So you stand for the same, the same things that we do, okay? But man, I find that if the kids were all tested in grade one, that would be, and you're saying one in five, right, brother? That's what, that's what it's going to be? Yes. Most likely to be? Yeah. Those numbers can't be ignored. Correct. So I find that if, if that could happen, then there could be a reason for there to be the, 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 the teacher training to be able to teach this group of kids. Correct. Right. And the funding would be created and business. You can't get to two till you get to one. You know, one is diagnosing what it is, you know, and then two is, you know, obviously, you know, finding that path in education. So there's a, there's a big picture that, that, you know, that pyramid that's got to be built, you know, built with this. And it's, that's why I'm trying to educate everybody what this is. And yes, it is one in five and it's hereditary. So it's not going anywhere. You know, cancer is one and two, not all, all hereditary. Next is dyslexia, one in five in hereditary. So uh, right now in the U.S., we think about 40 million adults have dyslexia. Two million know it. So wow, that's amazing, buddy. The way that's I find amazing. It is how most people find out in my generation. So uh, autism is where we are today. So in 20 years, I hope that dyslexia is mainstream. And everybody understands that it is a learning difference, not a learning disorder. And you just learn the way that you need to be taught. And it's a cookie cutter system for everybody. Everybody's different. You're different. Your brother's different. I'm different. And we have to do a better job of um, teaching the kids way they're going to learn the right way. And, and you're absolutely right. Now, Part of, Brent, what I find, and another thing that kind of jumped out on me, brother, was I'm watching a guy that, you know, as an ex-player, I like, I admire you for how good your career was and how successful you are. And, you know, I'm watching a video of, like, stuff that happened, like, the Stanley Cup year. And, you know, you're telling the guy that at that time in your life, your self-esteem was maybe 25%, maybe but you're but you're winning Stanley Cups and and like buddy I went one year when I played for the Rochester Amherst man we got to the conference final in the AHL buddy and for me man that battle in those playoffs and getting to the third round man that's a life experience in itself so I could only imagine the journey of that playoff run when you guys won the cup and and the fact that there can be someone that can be at 25% self-esteem, man, you're so strong to be able to do what you do, man. And I want to know how you have dealt with that to today, man. Your you know, self-esteem, Brent. You can't judge a book by the cover. You have no idea what's going on in here. You don't know what has happened in my past. You don't judge anybody. You don't know what's going on there. You know, there's no right or wrong. 
they make that decision for, for them. And so you talk about no, no self-esteem. You know, look at all those years that I struggled. And standing, you know, in grade nine, you know, and getting laughed at. I still think about that today. Yeah. You know, that, those, those left marks and scars have never gone away. And that's, that's what I want to prevent these kids. You know, there's no such thing as a class clown or a bully. Mm-hmm. Why? Okay, let's find out. Why is he upset? Why is he doing what? There's a reason why. And it's usually in here. We're hiding something. I'd rather make somebody laugh or I'd rather beat somebody up, which is wrong. But that's how I protected myself. And I, and I, and I, did, I did notice that when I was watching things you know, trying to prepare for the show and like, you are a big, a bigger guy, like height wise, and you can get to a certain size, right? Like maybe like if you weren't an athlete that your natural size would be smaller or whatever, but you're still, you're six foot two, right, Brett? Yeah. You're six foot two. So you've been six foot two, I'm assuming since you've been drafted. I, I, right? I, I was 12 years old. I don't think I, oh, okay. So you, you, you got, you got the six two right away. Okay, so you were able to use your size yes. to protect yourself when it came down to it. Yeah, protect my inside. And, you know, I was protecting my inside for something I didn't even know what it was yet. And that was yeah. the hardest part. Um, it, it, it was not fitting in. You know, we all just want to fit in and be cool. And I couldn't, you know, because I struggled with just the simplest, the simplest thing. And. You tell yourself you're dumb, stupid, and lazy enough, you start believing it. Yeah, exactly. If you say something enough, you really do believe it. Yeah. And that's the way it works. And people need to understand that, right? Yeah. I'm a strong believer in that. What, I, what, I, what I'm also interested in, Brent, is, is I... You've mentioned that you, know, that, that you had the opportunity, you know to be presented by a loving family and intervention at a time in your life when you needed it, man. And people that get interventions, when I, when I hear that, how, how, how I take it in is no, it's the person didn't get an intervention. What happened was they just were shown that they have love and support and not everybody has that. Right. What my question is, is when you did do the rehab, did you find that going through rehab is when you really found out the most? Like with the counseling and everything that was included in that part? Yeah, you know, again, you talk about the love. You know, if you're drinking and you're doing drugs, you don't, you don't love yourself. No. You know, and for us to, to be successful in this world, you got to be able to look in the mirror every day. And tell yourself, I love you, know it, feel it, and believe it. And obviously, I didn't. And so I had to get sober to see things clear because I would just mask it with drugs and alcohol and not feel those feelings. You know, I, I had to get sober. I had to go back and go through all those years of pain and be okay with it and be okay with struggling here. And, you know, my parents here, you know, all these things that I had to go back out. I call it, you know, when I, I counsel, clean out my closets. And I had to go back and fall in love with who I was all over again and start my life all over again in a completely different light. Now, one, one thing that I really liked, Brent, and I, and I think it's going right along with this timeline here, 
is when you found out about loving yourself and and all that type of stuff and you're trying to find things that make you happy and and that and that and that fulfill you and you know you you got to find that in coaching my friend right yeah and you know it's being dyslexic i i i see things differently and you got to have fun. I was out there having fun with the kids and, and on the ice. And um, again, you so talk, where were you coaching? Where, where was that? In, in the suburbs of Chicago where, you know, where I was I retired. And you, you talked about being able to see the game a little bit different. We played the game. So we, we see it differently. And these kids that, uh, you know, Stanley Cup champion is coaching them. And I was there having fun. I was playing air guitar on the bench and karaoke. And every Sunday I'd show up the game with no shirt on, just a vest and, <laughs> you know, it was, I was there, you know, to raise men, not hockey players. And, and, you know, it was good to get back in the game. I had to step away from it for a while and get sober and really find out who I was away from the hockey and who I was going to be moving forward. Yeah, man, that's pretty sick. Now, the other thing, the other thing that I just, I had, I had to ask you, man, because I mean, you spent some time in Russia, right? Yeah. To what right before the end, like we're talking kind of towards the end, but right before the end, you know, you played in a very, very high level in Russia, a league that pays some players a lot of money. Yeah. So just, just, just while we're smiling here and stuff, I just had to ask you, man, because I mean, I mean, when I was on the Chicago Wolves, I played with guys like Freddie Brathwaite and those guys, yeah. men that played in the KHL that were making big time money, right? Freddie Brathwaite would tell us stories about how his team would have to pay them before practice. So Freddie would actually have to put bundles of cash in his pads because he ain't putting that in his car, man. And, and he ain't yeah. leaving it in his stall. Yeah. Wait, so, like, why would he, you know, we're talking a lot of money here, man. Did you, did you have some crazy experiences getting paid in Russia? No, you know it's so KHL right now is the second best league in the world. Yes, you know they've they've that's that was kind of the old regime. Now the KHL has a salary cap, and um, I was treated amazingly. You know, I got to go over Russia and continue my career. You know, and, and then I come back to the Wolves because I wanted to get my thousandth professional game in North America. So that's why I did come back. But I was in a you know Eastern Europe, Russia, Latvia. Uh, Sweden, Switzerland, Kazakhstan, just places that, you know, you would never, you know, nobody would ever go. So I got to extend my career, see these cultures, play hockey. One of my best friends that I talk to uh, every other day, you know, is still in Russia now. And um, I loved it. You know, I, I talk, I got stories all day long about it, how big the country is and uh, the travel and what went on. You know, if you fly coast to coast, it's eight hours in the air and a seven hour time change. And you know, a lot of crazy things because it's a different culture than, than we're used to here. But I got to see the world, so I was blessed. See, I'm very happy to hear that, Brent, because on a very smaller scale, I had an experience of going to a league that was a certain way at one time, and then it changed and got salary cap and new regime. And, and I'm talking about that that Quebec semi-pro yeah. league yeah, you know yeah. they used to be run by the hell's angels the biker gangs everyone's getting paid in cash you yeah. know guys like you know you know we all went there and got big signing bonuses blah 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 now it's all it's all clean it's all checks you know everything's by the books and it's a much healthier league and people have some incredible experiences so i'm so happy to hear that that's the situation in russia man because 
the I don't know. I, I think it's just media in general, man. Like when you're in North America, like things in Russia, they just they just make them kind of seem like they're not as good as they are. It's like that old rivalry or something. I'm not even really sure. But man, like I some of the coolest people I have ever met are Russian. I have some incredible Russian friends that I've even met that have nothing to do with hockey. And and but but they're huge hockey guys, but I didn't meet them through playing. And and man, like I can only I'm a big cultural guy, like I mentioned to you earlier. I can only imagine how awesome that was. So I'm so happy to hear. So everything was just just really professional. And I already know that it's the 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 best hockey players in the world other than the NHL. So so that, that is really how it is, because I don't think people realize that, man. The KHL is, is the real deal. Yeah, it's a real deal. Um, yeah, everything goes up and up. And I guess everything go back 20 years ago, everything was different. You know, yeah. so they, everything's, you know, checks and balances. And, um, you know, we want to talk about the media. Is that's what is influencing the world. So I was there when Russia invaded Ukraine. Okay. You know, so okay. Playing, and, you know, my parents are calling me, oh, my God, you okay? You know, so what they were making it out to be was nothing. So okay, like, so... So what we were told is not really how it is. Correct. So for an example, you know, uh, you know, the fires and you know, things are going, you know, burning in Kiev. They made it seem like it was a whole city. It was like, <laughs> wow. You know, so uh, yeah, that's really what, you know, made the influence of, of the things that you, you were talking about and what we see and what actually does happen. And, Russia's got some, you know, the churches. So I would, I go to churches. I check out the churches. I go to Croatia. I went to church and some of the most beautiful architecture. Um, obviously, I speak only Canadian. I'm not, I haven't graduated American, so there was no Russian for me. But it was, yeah. it was amazing the way of life and uh, what they did and how they did, and not even close to what we, you know, go on on a day to day basis here. Man, I like. I wish that I had the I wish I had the opportunity to have gone to Russia. There was a small little window, man, when when Morasti and Yablonsky and Gillies and those guys were going over. And yeah. there was one team that that was kind of interested in me to be in because they were in the same division as those guys, man. But it just it just it didn't pan out. But man, that must have been such a great opportunity to be over there, man. And I'm sure and you got to see everything, right? Because of all there's multiple countries that are that are also involved in that league that are outside of Russia, right? Yeah, you know they've expanded. There's a team in uh, in Finland in Helsinki, Jokerit's That's playing. Right. There's a team in China. So yeah, it's it. There's has, a team in China. Yeah. So what city? There's a COVID in uh, Shanghai. So you want to talk about travel? So from Moscow to Shanghai, is, I think it's 12 hours in the air. Holy man! You know, so it, the travel is crazy. It, it's changed this year for for COVID, but uh, Latvia has got a team. Riga, Kazakhstan. So all these countries that I would have never went to and I, I yeah. was pretty, pretty, pretty great. And I got to continue my career. I got to hit a thousand games and one of my best friends uh, you know, is, is living in Russia. And, um, I get nothing but great things to say. Great people. Uh, it, it was an amazing experience. All right. So let's okay. So let's go back. Let, let's get to when we went back to Chicago to get play this thousandth game. So now I, you know, like I saw that you played, like you had, you played what, 30 games, 30 games that year for the Wolves, right? So what did you need to get the thousandth game before you started playing that season? 
I think 29. I think that's what it was. Oh, oh so you needed, you needed the, like the 29 games. Yeah. You played 29. You played 29. <laughs> so you needed 29. I retired, you know, not long after. So it was, I was kind of like Reg Dunlop, player coach. You know, I so, wouldn't. So did you? No, okay, but no. And, and I mean, I'm sure the last 10 years of your career, you were like a player coach, buddy. You're, you're a big time veteran wherever you went. But, but so, but that year on Chicago though, so you were, you were obviously a player, but after that game was, did you come on the bench or, or like what happened after that? No, you know, um, so I was, I was there for the guys and trying to teach them. I wanted to see the guys go on to, to, to NHL careers and, yeah. uh, and move on from there. Um, you know, the GM Wendell Clark or Wendell Clark, um, Wendell Young was the GM. He kind of, he kind of forced me into retirement. He, he screwed me over. And, um, after that game, he, quote unquote traded me to force me to retire um which what it's not about me it was the rest of the guys they were like what what happened because i was with them every day and it, it was a it was a shock to to those guys so uh, i felt bad for them, but i wanted to see them go on the nhl so i practiced i was trying to help them here and do this and you know i, I only played you said 29 games so i wasn't playing all the games and play one game yeah. here and there and it was just to, to get to that. So I was blessed that, you know, I got to get that and, uh, in North America and say I played a thousand, you know, professional regular season games. Man, and, and it's, and then congratulations, man, because it's unbelievable, right? Yeah. So now, now apart from, from that with, you know, the trade and all that, okay, apart from that though, the Chicago Wolves, it was a really good experience for you, right? Being a part of that organization, other than the, the, that part, Everywhere right? I went, there was a lesson. And yes. you know, later on in my career, as, as I'm winding down, um, there, were, there were different lessons for me. And yeah, every stop uh, was a great stop. And every stop, I met great people and uh, made me who I am today. And again, like I said, there's not a lot of people can say they play over, you know, played a thousand games. And Chicago is a full circle. That's where I played my first, you know, NHL game. That's where I won, you know, the Stanley Cup. And to come back and get my thousands game plan for them, uh, it just completed the circle. So that that city means everything to you. Yeah, that's uh, you know that's where all my kids are. Um, I've moved away there. I've moved to you know Tampa, Florida now, but uh, that's where I was for 13, 14 years. And you win a Stanley Cup in a place, and it's a great city, as you talked about earlier. And um, it, it'll always mean the world to me. And that's where all my kids are. Yeah, buddy, that's amazing. That's very, very blessed. So now I want to get back. I want to get back to the the, the Brent Sopel Foundation, buddy, because that's what really gets my my juices flowing, right? So now, Brent, when I watched your documentary, right, I was like, I was I was entertained by it. I was it was it was very informative. Like I really, you have a really big presence, buddy, that that you bring when you talk because when you talk, people can feel your emotion, man. Like. Like when I first started watching a little bit, I'm like, wow, is this guy ever intense, man? I really like this guy, man. Like I like that, but it's a different type of intensity. What I'm trying to get at right now is how you broke down the foundation with the educate support. And number three was the biggest one because you know what, you know what, you know what I heard? I'm going to tell you what I heard and then I'm going to tell you what, what, what I really heard. Okay. Dyslexic, dyslexics are amazing. We are a little different. I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, we become mainstream. 
My goal in life is to change the world. Do you know how powerful that is? Do you know what you're doing? Like, buddy, like you're, do not stop. Do not stop. Do not stop because everything that you're saying is happening and it's only going to get better. And it's not about me. It's about every kid that's out there. So I won't stop because I know there's a kid that's sitting somewhere right now struggling. So my story that I tell and I tell my stories, it's not about me. It's for them to find out that they're not alone. And uh, I've, I believe for years that I'm going to change the world. And somebody said to me, you know, you're making yourself vulnerable. I'm like, Don't, no, I'm not. Those words that you said, that they said, doesn't resonate with me because this is my purpose. And the ultimate thing, Brent, is you believe you're living out your life purpose, correct? Correct. I believe that you are. What a very, a very, very incredible, you know, class that I took in my life called paradigm thinking. And the one question that they said is, you know, how do you, how do you define success? So you ask people, you know, how do you define success? And some people say, oh, well, success, that would be, you know, to have two cars and a nice house and, you know, a, a good salary. And okay, cool, man. So that, that's how they define success. If you take this class, Brent, they, they teach you that success is when you're living your life purpose. When, when you're living out your life purpose, yeah. you're living in the here and now and that you're present. That's that, success. And that's the biggest thing. And go through, go back through COVID. That's what the COVID was there for. The people who did the self-evaluation on themselves, God was telling them to slow down, spend some time with themselves self-evaluate, learn more about your family. If you did that hard work, you're in a good position today. If you didn't, you know, that's where you, there's only one thing you can control is yourself. And you can't change the past, can't change the future. You can only change it now. I, man, that, that's, I, I feel lucky just to have heard that live because it's live for me. The <laughs> listeners are going to hear this in a week. I just heard that live and, and I just, I, I, I just got a cold shock, man. So that's incredible. And, and I'm, and I'm, I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing it. So now listen, so let's get down to some business here, Brent Sopel. So again, man, I keep bringing him up cause he's such a good guy. Our friend, Ryan Phillips, yep. he gave, he kind of installed into me today that although the sheriff podcast is getting a lot of guests and whatnot, there's certain guests that need to return. So like I, before, when I asked you to be a special guest, Brent, I told you, you're like, you know how long I, I go, it's probably going to be about an hour and we're going to have some fun and stuff. And man, I had so much fun with you, buddy. I learned so much from you. I like, I can't even get into all that right now. Cause I'll take too long. And you know, I've already gone over the hour by half an hour. So pretty much what I'm getting at Brent is, I want to know right now, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're on the hot seat. You're on the, the sheriff hot seat. Are you interested in coming back for a part two? I'll come back for a two, three, four, whatever you'll have me. I'll, I'll, I'm here to help for anybody in this world. So anytime I can have a conversation with you and an amazing job you, done, you did tonight, um, I'll, my door is open. You got my number. Give me a call. That's fantastic, buddy, because I need to have guys like yourself, Ryan Phillips. I need to guys have you guys back because this isn't just about putting on shows. 
for me, it's about the awareness and getting some action happening. So we're talking about the Brent Sopel Foundation. We're talking about one in five people are affected by this. We're talking about people need to be tested so they can see how many people are really affected by this. So action needs to happen. We're not going to get that done with, with an hour and 28 minute podcast from a guy that just started this two months ago that, you know what I mean? That's not going to happen. We need to continue this. I'm going to be bothering you a lot because I just think you're incredible, man. I like to network and work with people like you, people like Ryan Phillips who introduced me to you. So I'm, I cling on to people that want to make a difference because that's what I want to do. And I find that alliances are the strongest thing because it really is strength in numbers, man. And when we can do that, we can make more people aware and action can happen faster. So that's really what this is all about, right? Yeah. So this 100%. show, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So you, you give off is what you attract. So you're giving off energy. You're giving off something that you want to be very effective in life. You want to change things. You want to be there to help people. That's what you're going to draw in. You know, so that's where I come into play. If you're giving off the negative that glass half empty, guess what? It's going to take you down a different path. So it's it's your thought process every day, all day long. It's getting you to this point and getting you that success that you're having with the podcast. That's fantastic, buddy. And I, I appreciate it so much. And to be honest with you, buddy, I'm looking so forward to working with you, buddy, making people aware. I want to support your foundation so much, buddy. I want to be a part of the moments for the, the, the move moments, the movements for the better good. That's what I'm all about. And I'm just happy to have met you, brother. I hope that I can now call you a friend. And oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just happy, buddy, that we're going to change the world together, bud. With everyone else that wants to be a part of this, we're going to do it, man. We're going to yeah. do it. So, Brett, I mean, I want to – Yeah, I'm sorry? It's, it's amazing that you took me and you took every kid and that person that heard it tonight. You know, you don't know how far that changed somebody's life. So, um, thank you for allowing me to have that because, you, you know, you saved people's lives tonight. That's strong words from Brent Sopel, a strong man, a strong character, and an idol of mine, man. I, I, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of yours, buddy, and, and I love everything that you're doing. And like I said, I know you said you will never stop, so I'm very happy to hear that. So I know the listeners, man, you guys got a lot today, buddy. You guys got, you guys got a lot today from this special guest. So I want to thank you again, buddy, and I want to thank the listeners for tuning in. Um, this was an incredible episode, guys. I learned so much today, and I hope that you did too. So we will be back soon, guys. Um, I want to I sign off on behalf of Kyle Warner, my co-host that couldn't be here today, Brent Sopel. Thank you so much, buddy. You were an incredible co-host, and I will talk to you again soon. Guys, thanks for tuning in to The Sheriff, and we'll see you soon. Woo!